We're working our way through a rather extensive list of variations of tradition on the practice of communion. Again, these are some of the tenets of communion that at times distinguish entire denominations from each other. They also present the danger of overshadowing the underlying principle behind communion. So in the interest of a deeper understanding of what we believe and why, here's George. Some permit any ordained person to preside at communion. Some permit only certain classes of ordained people to preside. Some permit only ordained men to preside, believing that this person is standing in Christ's place and is the groom welcoming his bride, the church, to the holy meal. Some of these will recognize the ordination of the presider only if it was conducted by men who have never ordained women. Some see the meal as fellowship of Christ's followers with no gender restrictions and no assumptions about the leader being a groom or others being the bride. Some see bride and groom as a metaphor, one among many of the love of God for his people, and not as a prescription for how communion is to be conducted. Others treat this metaphor as if it were an inviolable command from God. Some call this gathering for communion a Eucharist or great thanksgiving. Some call it communion. Others, the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. Some use all of these terms, while others restrict themselves to just one or two. It is typical that many people who call it the Lord's Supper do not even know the term Eucharist, while those who call it Eucharist all the time rarely use the term the Lord's Supper. Each of these many, many concepts on the meal Jesus shared with his disciples and whether and how his followers might recall the event has fierce advocates and defenders. Over the centuries, these concepts about communion have gained layers of doctrines, subdoctrines, and practices, volumes of arguments by theologians, canons or laws, and books of ritual. And each has grown into a mighty fortress, alone and apart, a tall idol whose followers worship there and declare other fortresses, other tall idols, other concepts to be anathema, unholy, and unworthy. A mighty fortress is our God. It is sad irony that communion actually means to be in union, in fellowship together, and it has been used to produce division in the church because we differ on concepts about it. This process has been repeated not just about baptism and communion, but for countless other concepts in the church, from apostolic authority to ordination to celibacy to monogamy to polygamy to candles on the altar to having an altar to the use of instruments in worship to the dressing up for God on Sunday to plain dressing to women wearing head coverings to men without mustaches, issues that seem larger trivial depending upon who is judging them. Religious concepts of Jesus 
range from believing he is actually literally also Father God and Holy Spirit, manifesting himself as each as needed, to three persons in one God, to the belief that he was a liberal political activist, not divine at all, railroaded to death by conservative enemies. All of these and thousands of others are the excuse for bitter dispute, division, divorce, disfellowship, and with many, even torture and killing. What in heaven does this have to do with loving God and neighbor? It is attention to things, not God or people. Even if we are thoroughly convinced that our concept is superior to the other concepts, how sad it must make the heart of God to see us viciously attack and separate from each other for the defense of our favorites. We elevate things over people. Even though our things are built with religious words and are partly derived from Scripture, they are still concepts, not God and not human beings. Jesus did not set aside the law and the prophets, but he did insist that they hang upon and are subservient to love of God and neighbor. We fabricate religious concepts, worship them, and we hurt actual people while defending them. We fail to preserve the love of God and neighbor. Do concepts outrank love of God and neighbor? Sadly, the answer is yes. No excuses. It is what we have come to in the church. God forgive us. What shall we do? There is an answer. It's reconciliation. And we begin looking at that now, and it is what Scripture teaches us to do. And it's my deep prayer that we all find our hearts broken by the lovelessness we have shown for one another in the body of Christ. You and I both have done this. Though we all claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, we defend our religious concepts, doctrines, and practices as if they are our gods, and other people as if they are obstacles to our worship of these gods. We act as though such things matter, and people don't. We would rather be right in our own eyes than loving in God's eyes. Even when we realize we have spoken evil of others, rather than repent, we justify our words or actions with a yes, but, and an explanation. Yet Paul told us to speak evil of no one, be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. He also cautioned us to avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. And so, instead of real unity in Christ, we war over our differing concepts about him. What a mess we've made of fulfilling Jesus' words, that all of them may be one, Father, 
just as you are in me and I am in you. We can change this. Here is what we are called to in 2 Corinthians 5. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. We, you and I, are called to bring the gospel message of reconciliation to the world. Yet we ourselves have failed to be reconciled with one another and have too easily discarded Jesus' clear commands about love of God, neighbor, and even enemy. What shall we do? First, we need to realize what this call to reconciliation is not. Then we must understand what it is and how to live it out. So let me summarize where we have gone wrong, then recall what Scripture calls us to do. The life of a Christian should be one of sanctification, that is, learning to live like Jesus, love God, neighbor, and even enemy. It is not about fighting over religious concepts, specifically as they form and then produce doctrines, creeds, hermeneutics, and apologetics, forms of worship, music, or liturgy, structures of authority and organization in the church, traditions, whether ancient, modern, middle-aged, teachers, leaders, preachers, and others, and then harming or even just marginalizing those who disagree with or don't care about our favorite and well-thought-through concepts. Yet we are so entangled in the ways we have thought about all of this that the most common immediate reaction to the warning above is fear. Fear that the faith will be lost if any ground is given to those with different concepts about. See the list above. Our thinking typically goes awry. When rather than finding ways to reconcile, we worry that we give up the church when our concepts are not worshipped and followed by others. We'll come back next time and look how we go wrong there and then begin to look at how we go right, how we reconcile with Christ and each other next time. Thank you, George. Well, in the midst of a discussion of the various elements that bring out turmoil, it's refreshing to introduce the topic of reconciliation. Of course, it may not surprise you that even the topic of reconciliation has divisive energy within some camps. We'll continue dissecting the topic more fully next time we're together. In the meantime, a quick reminder that the website whatwebelieveandwhy.com has plenty of resources. We hope you'll check it out and see if some might be helpful to you. And we'll see you next time for What We Believe and Why.